Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Tox Talk, a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. And in this episode, we are going to take a bit of a trip. We are headed to one of the most isolated countries in the world to talk about their pretty novel approach to drug policy. Yes, we are going to New Zealand, land of the Kiwi, land of pavlova and gumboots, where rugby is a religion. Uh, and uh, some of you uh, might be familiar with this, but in 2013, the government of New Zealand embarked on a grand experiment to try and uh, legislate uh, the expanding market of quote-unquote legal highs, largely made up of synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, at the time, it was hard to believe. This is an idea that uh, would be... Um, uh, anathema to people in the U.S., but it brought attention from around the world with editorials and Reuters and elsewhere that it might actually be the future. Um, recent developments in New Zealand um, have brought that future into doubt. Uh, and so we are talking to Leo Shep. Uh, Dr. Shep is a toxicologist from New Zealand's National Poison Center um, and uh, effectively the Poison Control Center and uh, Department of Preventative and Social Medicine at the Dunedin School of Medicine and the University of Otago. Without any further delay, here's our conversation with Dr. Shep. With me today is Leo Shep from the National Poison Center. I want to thank you for joining me and agreeing to be on the program. Thank you. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to touch base with you was there seems to be a lot going on right now in New Zealand um, that that Kiwis and people around the world are watching in terms of the synthetic substances and, and quote-unquote legal highs. Yep. Yes, it's been, um, a ra- it's been quite rapid the last two weeks, and, and I've struggled to keep up with it. Um, essentially, we're in election year in New Zealand, and um, the current pa- um, party that's in power uh, starting to panic a little bit because they're going down in the ratings, and then the whole issue of synthetic cannabinoids has made them focus on the problem and making changes, almost knee-jerk reaction changes in the last two weeks. What we were originally trying to do, what the New Zealand was trying to do, was set up a system where people bringing these, these, um, these, these designer drugs to New Zealand they have to first prove they're safe because we know the issues related around analogs turning up that aren't defined by the respective legislation, whatever government and whatever country, and New Zealand's misuse of drug act from 1975. And so you get a product comes on the market, it gets identified, it gets banned, and the next one comes on. So every one you ban, two new replace it. And so the government, with the advice from our law commission, suggested um, put testing the process in place where the um, suppliers, manufacturers have to prove it's low risk. That's great. That was put into, bill, into legislation last year and we had um, an interim period for the, allow the Ministry of Health to get up to speed and organise themselves so then they could institute the, implement the, um, the requirements of the law um, with their manufacturers. So what happened was the interim period went from two months to two years. In the meantime, um, there were a number of products that had temporary approval 
and there was a lot of consumption of those products with adverse reactions and, and pressure on ED departments, etc., etc. And it got to the stage where it was getting public outrage, and every time you opened the newspaper, there would be two or three articles, and every time on TV, um, there'd be an article, and one of our stations called Television 3, we're running multiple stories almost every night on it, and I got interviewed last week in Wellington, um, talking about the adverse effects, and the day before they talked to somebody who said legalise marijuana, and the day after that they talked to Mr Huffman um, from Clemson, well he's a professor emeritus now from Clemson University in, in Southern, in, in Southern um, somewhere in one of the states in the United States, sorry. I don't remember which state it was now. So um, the pressure was building up in the government and the government blinked and they then took them all off the market. And the other issue has been around animal testing and um, the original report, which I'm very familiar with, said that you had to follow, well, basically the report followed FDA guidelines where you had to use two species, a rodent and non-rodent, and, and and part of the, of the recommendations said the non-rodent was typically a dog. That got picked up by the Privacy Information Act in New Zealand and it got a massive media attention a year ago. Again, the government blinked. Initially, they said we'll only test on one species. The Interim Expert Advisory Committee last weekend, this is how things are fast and moving, um, only last weekend said you need two species and they compromised and they said rabbit and rat. And the Prime Minister on Saturday said to uh, them um, and the Ministry of Health, well, I won't accept that. And so all animal testing is gone. And I'm of the opinion now that the, substance, the Psychiatric Substance Act that had such promise no longer is effective in being able to prove low risk unless you have the availability of animal models to test it. Because as we all know, that has to be done before being done with human, human um, volunteers notwithstanding areas such as um um define the safe dose yeah and and actually yeah just that was that was a fantastic summary of really years of developments and then weeks of developments happening pretty quickly um just to put it in context for people that are uh, listeners that aren't necessarily familiar with sort of the New Zealand um regulation scheme as it has been so just just a, a couple years ago New Zealand well New Zealand's unique in some respects because it's so isolated. So, so the the drug use here tends not to be what we have in the U.S. in terms of um, heroin and prescription opiate abuse and um, crack and cocaine. It tends to be much more homegrown, modified sort of amphetamine derivatives, and then some of these synthetic substances, as I understand. That's right. That's yeah. right. We we, we, it, we are isolated, and you know, people would grow their own marijuana. They would reduce the the, the pseudoephedrine to produce their own methamphetamine. They would home bake. We call extract um, solvent extract the opioids from panadine, which is a product in New Zealand, um, which which is acetaminophen and codeine. And they would take it out of there. And we didn't. We haven't seen the heroin um, problems. We haven't seen the cocaine problems. And God forbid we we. We don't see those problems. Um, we didn't also see the beta-cathinones, the bath salts, as you would call them, in, in the United States, because they were covered by the Misuse Drug Act. Cathinone and e-derivatives, out of here. And they never turned up, thankfully. But these other ones have turned up and they've become a big issue. No, absolutely. And so you had stores on every corner sort of selling the synthetic cannabinoids and spice and K2 and things and and things sneaking in. And it seemed like in um, in a way that no other country had attempted, New Zealand sort of said... Um, rather than going straight for a prohibitionist environment, there was some attempt to kind of regulate it and to say that um, while specific substances were obviously dangerous, certain um, synthetic cannabinoids may possibly be low risk and that there would be a scheme set up almost like yeah, the um, 
the FDA or other countries where sellers could demonstrate that they presented a low risk to people and could continue to sell them within a legal framework. And then, and then it seemed like the other caveats to that law in 2013 were that um, you had to have a specific uh, license to sell it. So you weren't getting sales right near schools. You weren't getting sales to minors. And the idea was that this could be sort of a golden era of drug regulation rather than prohibition. That's right. That's right. But the sticking point was the animal testing. Increasingly, there was revulsion in the public regarding the testing of animals. And um, I know in the United Kingdom, I've talked to colleagues over there, I've been over there, and the, 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 the protocols to get a license to test on animals is very rigorous and very difficult. And the university I was at, they, they only had, to my knowledge, only one license for animal testing. Here in Otago University in, 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 in South Island, New Zealand, you might have a dozen every time they meet. Um, to consider and, and approve. So increasingly the public are, are, are going against the idea of animal testing. So we're now in a bind. We want to keep the streets off the, dr the, the drugs off the street um, with appropriate legislation to prove that our risk, but we don't want animal testing. So we've now come to a point where, that, where the compromise has been made by the government, and I think it's a fatal compromise, and that is no more animal testing, and therefore you cannot show low risk with in vitro models. Well, and then, I mean, it seems like there's two issues, too, because the animal testing is certainly a big concern, and it's it's controversial in, in you know, in medical therapeutic testing also, but it seems like it's one of the ways that people deal with the idea of animal testing is they might be against um, uh, hurting animals or exposing animals to particular risk for no purpose, but if it's for the betterment, if, if, if it's for development of a cancer therapeutic or, um, or if it saves people's lives from heart disease, then there is that um, sort of risk-benefit idea. But then once you sort of have the idea that um, it's animal experimentation for the purposes of helping people get high, I think that is also a hard PR cell to make. It was an impossible PR cell to make. And I, and I can see the argument, and I don't disagree with the argument. But then my, my counterpoint to that is, well, if you want to prove low risk through the situation, you have to do that. And okay, you don't want animal testing, then ditch the bill and find an alternative approach, approach to testing, um, to, to keep or regulating or controlling the, these psychiatric substances that will continue to appear in our market. And as I keep saying, the media and, and conferences I present at, et cetera, et cetera, we're in a brave new world. And I think most people, those consultants know that. We are in a brave new world where analogs can turn up brand new on the market within weeks. And absolutely, and this is, I think, the attempt the legislation was trying to make because, I mean, so the, the U.S. and other countries have essentially banned certain analogs, and what they would find is just that within a matter of weeks or months or years, uh, a carbon group would be added, an amino group would be added, and the drug could technically be legal, and so that would be resold. And, and even from month to month, users who were using the same brand of of um, of drug or of synthetic cannabinoid would actually be getting uh, different different drugs, and then as a clinician, it's hard to know what to treat when when the supply and when consumption of products is is constantly changing. So the idea was it was sort of like you know grabbing a, a wet fish or a bar of soap uh, rather than um, rather than trying to continually um, ban these. The idea was that there could be a a regulated arena, and if you pin down the manufacturer and the salespeople on exactly what chemical was in it, then at least you have a, a stable supply and there can be some attempt um, to minimize harms associated with these substances. Yep. 
And, and part of the interim period, they had to tell the Ministry of Health what was in there and the strengths of the doses. So there was um, some consistency from that point of view, um, and, but the, the products that were given under approval, though we knew what the doses were and the analogues in them, there's nothing in the peer-reviewed literature on them. I know, I watch it on a, on a daily basis. I have a study going to three hospitals and we've identified them in the patients. Um, but um, apart, from, you know, apart from knowing what's in them and the strength what's in them, that's all we know. Well, and and then and that's an excellent point because effectively uh, there are a number of people on different sides of this issue, but even proponents of um, of you know full drug legalization are have expressed concerns about the gray market about the the way that right now what ends up happening then is um, we become the test subject the the, the, the teenagers and the users <laughs> who who buy these substances effectively become the test subjects for these chemicals. Um, which is is far from uh, anyone's ideal. Absolutely, and it's something that I've, I've I've been asked to speak in communities, in the departments, and you know, police, um, the whole gamut, and um, schools. And I've spoken to probably close to ten thousand students, and that's a point I make to them. I say to them, you know, we don't know what's in them. You become our guinea pigs, and, and I love to see the reaction on their faces when I tell them that, and they look quite surprised um, that they become the guinea pigs, and we find out from them. And then once we get a handle on it, the next one turns up, the next analog turns up, and we start again. So, so really, the eyes of the world are on are on New Zealand right now in terms of seeing if this scheme will work. And it, it seems like what has happened is um, so it, if if New Zealand was going to go from from a country that was that was banning certain drugs or not banning them to a country that was regulating um, the psychoactive substances, which as you've already mentioned, are mainly all synthetic cannabinoids because there isn't yep. really a C2 or a, a synthetic cathinone issue here. Yep. Um, if New Zealand is going to regulate those, then there has to be an interim period where information is gathered and an infrastructure is set up for controlled sales um, and, and keeping them away from kids and where people can actually apply for licenses. And so we were in that interim period and and then there just didn't seem to be an ability to move forward because as you've pointed out um when you have a crying mother on the news every day um or when you have doctors who are seeing patients who are suffering from some of these effects um it's it's um it seems questionable as to why the government would allow such substances to be sold it seems hard to justify that position and really to think about go back to the beginning as to why this was proposed in the first place um and and it really it maintains you have to have the political will to keep that going and as in election year certainly um political will is um a short supply item <laughs> very short supply which we've found out in the last two weeks um, and I watched the debate um, on my laptop at home the other day, and it was—I I mean, I found it very frustrating because they're all patting each other on the back and congratulating each other. They finally got rid of animal testing, which is an anathema. And as you pointed out before, that's correct. You know, from from a point of view of testing for psychoactive substances, I see the argument. Okay, so they're patting themselves on the back, thinking they've solved the problem, but they haven't solved the problem, and that's the problem. And we're going to see, you know, there's going to be a grace period now, maybe a year, two years, while the Ministry of Health get the infrastructure in place. Then products will be tested with in vitro testing. They'll be deemed to be, quote, unquote, low risk. They'll go on the market. You guys at the ED department, us at the Poison Centre, we'll be the first to notice it. We'll alert the Ministry of Health. 
they will ban it, and the next one will turn up, and we'll back to square one. And well, and then, but that was that, so. Just to clarify, also during this whole interim period, when um, and it was very interesting, I have to say, anyone who's listening, you can go on to the um, New Zealand Ministry of Health website and see at least which licenses were applied for. Um, and it really, it, you know, it was kind of like a, uh, a DEA or sorry, an FDA of of synthetic cannabinoids and drugs, right next to the brand name, right next to the name, you know, John Smith in a particular town selling selling the drug. And um, during that period, um, physicians and I think the Poison Center also was encouraged to try and monitor um, specific drugs for adverse outcomes and adverse effects. And and uh, we're told to sort of say, if you see someone who seems to be having, you know, a tachydysrhythmia or a psychosis or a problem from a particular substance, report it, um, similar to the MedWatch system in the U.S., uh, so that the uh, government can uh, investigate and possibly ban it. But it seemed like that type of monitoring proved harder um, harder than most people anticipated. Yeah, that would be correct. They, they had relied on us and another institution in Dunedin, the Centre for Adverse Reaction Monitoring, CALM, we called it. They relied on us. It's a great name. Sorry, yeah, it's a great name. It is a great name. Um, they relied on us, and because we're one of the few institutions in the country that um, does the whole country, you know, and we get a snapshot at any given time. Um, and, we, you know, the calls are going up all the time. Last month we took 70 calls, and you have to realise this is a population of 4 million people, all right? unlike the US, which is, what, 300 million people. Um, and so we took 70 calls last month. But that in itself wasn't enough information for me to have to make decisions. But, I've, again, I keep reading contact with the person who makes the decision which one to be banned and not to be banned. He said to me a couple of days ago that, that we're starting to get to the point where we're getting the body information to confidently get rid of more of the product. So we went from zero um, when the interim period started to the point where we are now. Um, but as we've already pointed out, there was public outrage, and so that kicked in um, to get them off the market. So the government was relying on the Ministry of Health, who relied on us, realising that we didn't get enough information fast enough, they started turning to the ED departments as well. And that's where we were starting to come to before the government blinked. Yes, and then and then so I mean I've uh, I've spoken to to providers in in EDs in New Zealand and and you know you you see someone who comes in um, sweaty, tachycardic, um, hallucinating, tremulous. Um, you can treat them and you say, well, what did what did you use? And the universal you get, you know, I use some legal highs. Well, well, what kind of legal highs? Well, I don't know. They were they were legal highs. Um, and, and it was just, um, anyone who's ever tried to get a medication list from a patient knows how hard it can be, uh, for people to remember exactly what they're taking. And in this particular case, it became really hard to know what someone was taking and then to feel confident enough to report that. Um, and so it sounded like you during this period, um, have also been trying to do some work on, on monitoring. Yeah. Well, I, as I said, no, I just touched on it a bit out of Briefly, um, I've got a study going through hospitals. It's finished now. Where we would try and recruit people onto our study who had taken some of the cannabinoids, and we've had them analysed in, the, in, in the United Kingdom because there wasn't any lab in the country that could do it from the blood. And we're talking picograms and millimounts here now. And we just found soups in patients' blood, absolute soups. And we're in the process of publishing that now. Really, this is me motivated to write it up. Um, but we've got all the data now, and and that has surprised me. A, what they were taking, and B, how long it stayed in the body. Um, there are some reports coming out of Germany now suggesting the half-life may not be measured in hours, but it could be measured in, in days, if not weeks. So, you know, and these are very lipophilic products, and they petition very readily into the, into the, into the fatty tissue and blood-bound barrier into the neurons. 
um, and which makes sense with the, um, the adverse effects it has, particularly neuropsychiatric effects, but not necessarily only those effects. Um, and so we have seen, you know, one patient, I think six days after the event, um, that we, we found evidence of, I think, one of the analogues, 100 picograms per mil, which I found surprisingly high. Um, and so they hang around for a while, and you know, most of the literature, not all the literature, a good percentage of the literature only reports this patient had these, took these cannabinoids and had these symptoms. Um, and there are others that have said, you know, we've analysed symptoms. But we've analysed these and as I said, we've got all the analogues that, uh, well, most of the analogues that were legal, quote-unquote, in the, in the country. And so that's what you guys in America would call the third generation uh, analogues, things like Abifumica, and, and, um, and PBF, uh, 22F, 5F. Do you think that um, having a known list of possible analogs helped with testing? I guess that's one of the issues, too, is, is testing is notoriously difficult in the U.S. And yeah, we, well, you, you see, know, you've got to go to first principles when you put through an LCMS, but you, you start with the exact mass, <laughs> and then you scratch your head, you start with your library, and then, of course, it won't be on your library, mm-hmm. and then you say, uh, and then you, and then from there you look at the metabolites. This is the approach that the, the company that I was dealing with. You start looking at the metabolites, where are the hydroxy groups, you know, are they on the, on the alcohol and the, a five carbon ring, a five carbon um, alcohol chain. Are they on the indole, for example? Are they on the nepheline um, ring, a double ring there? Um, and so you, you work backwards from your mass spec profile to what you are pretty confident it is. And if you've got a standard, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, most of the time, came in chemicals haven't put the standard out yet. So you, again, you're working back from the exact mass and as I said with metabolites to try and figure out what you've got. And it's quite successful. We, we, there was one that we found um, that is not defined by what's, what is legally accepted in New Zealand and we found about 30% of the patients. It took us about a week, um, but I think we figured out in the end the process. We're doing some NMR work in Otago at the moment to try and verify that. But we're confident we've, got, we've identified most of them. And under the under the interim schema, were were manufacturers required to provide um, product or um, or standards or samples for testing? They they were required, as I understand it, to inform the Ministry of Health what was in the products and what strength, and that was it. But not to uh, actually provide product or or sort of. Or well, cu- the, I mean, there's ESR, no ESR, our regulatory agency in New Zealand. They could go down and buy the product, and I'm sure they have. I, I know that all the guys there. Well, I know the key people there. <clears throat> And they've gone and, and, and bought it off the shelf and sovereign extracted it and put it through, you know, cleaned it up and put it through their, their, their um, LCMS spec. And Wellington or Auckland, there's two of them in the country, two institutions that can do it. Um, so they've been doing that for a long time now. And they had, last time I was talking to them, obtained the standards um, for all the analogues, I think, except one. By now, they'll have all the standards available now um, of all the products that are legally until two days ago yes, <laughs> in New yes. Zealand. And it's always, it's always interesting to think about um, sort of researchers and scientists going down and buying some of these products. It makes me wonder um, what percentage of what percentage of them are sold to people who are studying them um, uh, and uh, and going into some of these shops. But, um, yeah, but I, it's the only way to get them, really. Um, yeah. And um, and then in, with some of these sales also, it seems like the other issue is overseas – a lot of these drugs and things are, are sometimes being sold um, through the internet, but yep. um, New Zealand is relatively isolated. Do you think there's been a lot of, although there does seem to be sale from you know North Island, South Island, South Island, North Island. Do you think there's a lot of a lot of uh, mail sales, or is this sort of? Oh, absolutely. You know, I know of instances where people have gone to court because the, the parcels have been um, have been discovered and, and come into the country, 
and I'm sure there are a certain percentage of them who are successful and get away with it. Um, but the customs, New Zealand customs, keep a close eye on what comes in the country, and they they grab a certain percentage. I don't know what the stats are. In fact, I think some of the customs sent me some stats about a year ago, and I just thought of it then, talking to you now. I should go back and have a look at what the seizure rates have been like. Um, not the rates compared with what they didn't know, because they don't know what they didn't know, but <coughs> what um, comes in the country, yeah. So they, they do grab some, and they and they follow them, and they arrest them, and the police arrest them, and they go before the courts and get charged and prosecuted and sentenced, um, and they will continue to go through the courts. But yes, that is a problem. Um, all of them over the internet, they, um, it's so easy now, you just go and push a button. You know, you type in city cannabinoids, slash China and you get any old website, not necessarily China, um, and then you just buy it with whatever currency you use and it turns up at your door. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then do you, so you mentioned that there was a particular product that you were studying where you think that they were using a banned, um, a banned uh, synthetic cannabinoid compound. I'm still trying to get the bottom of that one. I don't but know. The question, the, the one thing I would say is, so the whole point of this of this regulation schema is to sort of avoid that, is to is to sort of know what you have. And the, and the arguments in favor of it are that if you have a set of legalized drugs, then the pressure to to sort of put banned substance in in there won't won't be there. Do you know? I mean, you, do you know why a manufacturer would choose to put a banned substance in a in a drug that, for all intents and purposes, without that substance, is legal. Sorry, what was that question again? Sorry, so why, why would they do that? I guess why would they do that? Um, it, so the whole point of the of the regulation. It's illegal. I think what's happened is that they don't know what they're bringing in sometimes. Yeah. And there was an instance a couple of years ago where um, products were caught in New Zealand, and there was a a benzo in there, a Russian benzodiazepine called finazepam. Yes. Yes. Actually, that and, happened in um, uh, the U.S. also. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the um, the industry, quote unquote, in the early days, um, well, they, they cut the R teeth on there. You should be ZP, but um, they 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 pleaded innocent. They said we didn't know. And one of their arguments was pathetic. They said, oh, it could be contaminated on the bench and my lab bench. And you said, well, what's a restricted drug in New Zealand? Doing on your bench, you know, so that argument didn't wash. But there is a possibility that when they were ordering it, the contaminant could have been put in there in China, or as I went on record at the time to say, when the media that perhaps they put it in there to give a bigger, bigger bang for their buck. We don't know. Yeah, just another a sort of um, adjunct medication to sign up, yeah. enhance the high. And the um, symptoms at the time the were, you know, some of the symptoms of people turning up, and it really, it really flummoxed some of the ED consultants, was they had um, CNS. Severe CNS effects, which are related more to benzos than they would be to to, to cannabinoids. And once ESI discovered that that, that contaminant, um, a lot of AED consultants went, "Aha, that makes sense." So sometimes they might be importing. Come back to your original question. Sometimes they might be importing them in um, to to, um, to to enhance their product or. Say it's one thing, and yet it's another. But sometimes they might bring in; they don't even themselves. So that's the thing. The assumption is sort of that the man by doing this system, manufacturers will have some innate quality control. But that's an assumption that might not necessarily bear out. Exactly. Um, and so, and so, exactly. So there was this interim period. Um, a lot of controversy, a lot of news stories, a lot of political pressure to change change course. And even during this period, it seemed like there was still a huge amount of of uh, morbidity from these drugs and substances. Do, do you get a sense that during the interim period that that um, what was happening was changing, that we were seeing 
uh, fewer uh, adverse medical effects from these or or that it somehow reduced exposure to these to these drugs because that was the ultimate point yeah, of the legislation, yeah, yeah. right? Well, from our point of view, by law, after July last year, they had to put their phone number on the packets, right? So our calls have gone up. I was wondering about that, actually. I thought that was incredible. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, I cannot imagine. Because if, if the U.S. poison control number were on every single illicit substance or synthetic <laughs> substance sold, I cannot imagine what some of those calls must have been like. Oh, that, yeah, oh absolutely. That was not too bad. But you get those calls, you know, somebody ringing up and saying, you know, your product's terrible or I'm smoking this and it's great and that sort of thing. And we get those calls. You know, you, you, you can't get away from it, you know. Yeah, they all have the same that. drongo voice with them as well, as if their brain's been fried, almost to a person. Um, but coming back to your original question, um, from our point of view, even if you take into consideration the 800 number, the increased media attention we've had, um, they are going up. Uh, now in Dunedin, for example, high student population and uh, colleagues in the hospital were telling me this, that you know when, when it was legal before the July change last year, um, there, were, there were a lot of students smoking. Once they changed the law, they said, well, it's time to move on my life. And um, they were getting students turned up there, even medical students turned up there um, who, who were having adverse effects and needed supportive care. Um, well, the but, use of um, uh, recreational substances by medical providers is a, could be a whole separate issue in the show. And, um, <laughs> it's nice of you. To, it's nice of you to say even medical students, but um, I am not shocked. Um, You're uh, not shocked that, by that. Um, Isn't it propofol yeah. the highest use of propofol in anesthetists? Yes, right? yes, that seems to be uh, so. Anesthetists, and then sadly, I think followed shortly by emergency physicians uh, <laughs> right. uh, with access to substances and things. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But come back to your to your question. Um, it's, it's a very, very good question, and, and, and it's very difficult to answer. Most good questions are difficult to answer, actually. Um, and I, I'm not sure, really, um, but I know there's another subpopulation out there um, associated with that question I'm answering, is that you're now getting the chronic effects starting to kick in, where you're starting to see almost permanent psychosis in some people. Mm -hmm. You've seen brain pathways have been changed, particularly the youth who smoke it when they're still going through their brains, going through a pruning period, you know, and, and the risk is there with marijuana smoke, as we all know. And, and marijuana being a partial agonist and the synthetic cannabinoids being full agonist, you think, and I've talked to some psychiatrists here in Dunedin, and they agree that the risk is possibly greater with synthetic cannabinoids with having long-term psychiatric effects deal with marijuana and we're starting to see that now so you've got the novel effects when a drug turns up and they turn ED they know what to expect in the future like like LSD but there seems to be a, a twist in the tail with these particular ones these synthetic cannabinoids and when they bring you in along that you get new variations upon a theme like acute kidney injury with, with, uh, did it, was there, out there for a while and there have been reports overseas of strokes um, I, we haven't seen in New Zealand uh, yet uh, but they've been reported overseas. So you get the new analogues, new twist in the tail, um, but also the risks of um, chronic with a CH as, as opposed to a K, <laughs> um, long-term um, effects, particularly psych neuropsychiatric. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a huge issue, I think. And and I mean, we know that these substances. It, it seems like they they hit dopamine um, a little bit more. It seems like they encourage reuse and um, and second, third, fourth doses um, more than sort of the traditional cannabinoids. Certainly, anecdotal reports from people who use describe sort of a need to do you know second, third, fourth hit. And and then it seems like a lot of the toxicity is related to sort of increased dosing from people. Um, yeah, yeah. And and 
then it, um, it almost seems like, you know, when you're going into phase four trials, I mean, this is, this is, these are substances mm. that were used by a certain portion of the population. And, and some would think that actually the sort of the whole idea of the legal highs framework sort of gave them some legitimacy, but on some level, at the very least, you're getting more use. And so then you're going to start to see some of those, um, some of those effects that you didn't see before the, the That's renal right. failure, um, yeah. the, uh, the CVAs, um, and certainly the, the effect on, on developing brains is a, is a huge concern. And, and you yep. can argue, yep. you can argue that people are self-medicating who are at risk for psychosis. And that's why you're seeing it. You can argue that it affects the brain and certainly continually bathing your brain in abnormal levels of, of cannabinoid and dopamine yep. and serotonin is going to have long ranging effects. And then that actually leads us to where we are now. So, so um, due to a number of factors, um, these substances are no longer legal under an interim uh, uh, period. They are now yep. banned. Yep. And what do you think? Uh, what do you think we'll be seeing? Yeah. We we go from here. <laughs> I haven't got a crystal ball, but I'm grumpy and 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 pessimistic at the same time. Um, where we go from here, we're going to have an underground market. Of course, we are. People. Um, who have taken some of the cannabinoids, these full agonists, CB1 agonists, are going to try marijuana. It's not going to touch it because if they're partial agonists. They'll go to things like methamphetamine, which is really available, particularly in North Island. Not a problem in the South Island, but marijuana is a big problem in the South Island. Um, they, they'll go to methamphetamine, but as we know, they, they, they hit different receptor clusters in the brain than, than, than the um, CB1 cannabinoids. Yeah, so they, might have a yeah, they might have a double whammy in their hands at the end of the day. So they will increasingly turn, a lot of them seek help um, through appropriate support services and the, and the various DHBs in this country, the district health boards in the, in the country, um, or they may go to the black market, either through dealers or through the internet, and they run the risk of being prosecuted. And I noticed in the media this morning that the police have prosecuted the first people in Hamilton um, who were trying to sell it out of a motel room and they got tipped off and they got uh, charged. Proud, proud Hamilton, home of the uh, original Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show. Is that um, right? Is that where it came yeah. from? I didn't know that. Yes, yes. There's a statue actually of, of one of the characters uh, <laughs> uh, down there. Um, so I guess it's appropriate. But yeah. So um, I think yeah, you're going to get different responses from different people. Like like the students in Otago, they they some of them ceremoniously burnt their bongs. You know, I read in our local rag a couple of years ago, and so some of them might ceremoniously burn their bong and move on in their lives after a bit of a uh, mild withdrawal effects. But again, talking to psychiatrists, the withdrawal effects with some of the cannabinoids can be very adverse and more severe than you get with other addictions. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I know people have died with adverse effects with GHB withdrawal. I know that. Um, and they seem to be kettle, another kettle of fish again. But it, you know, with that in mind, with, with that in the, in the background, they don't seem to be... The, the adverse effects of the cannabinoids seem to be far greater than other abuses when people try to get off them, such as I don't benzos or heroin or whatever. Um, and that's discussion with other people who don't see much of these drugs in the country, as I've already said to you. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see in the next few months where we go. Um, hopefully people will get the good sense in seeking help. There's nothing that touches it, as I've said to you already, and, and as far as I can tell, there's nothing therapeutically that touches it. Some suggest benzodiazepines, some suggest quetiapine, others suggest haloperidol. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm of the I'm of the belief that the only thing benzodiazepines don't treat is benzodiazepine overdose. Um, so I mean, I I think they can help, but I I I certainly 
it, it's going to be a miserable time for people it's be a miserable that, time. Um, yes. that we're using. And, um, and the question is whether or not um, they sort of present to their to their um, providers or to the ED with with withdrawal symptoms and maybe yep. get nursed through that, um, or whether or not they shift on to other drugs. It's certainly right. going to be um, an increased use of sort of uh, drug and alcohol services um, yep. coming up. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So some will turn to the black market and get their synthetic cannabinoids. Some will think they're getting synthetic cannabinoids. They're getting something else. Sometimes it's just it's just a latte if it's a tablet. Um, a coffee, a caffeine, um, but others will, um, yeah, others will just ride the storm at home, bang the head against the wall, literally, in some cases. Oh, absolutely. And and the other thing is, I have to say that I don't know. Once the country goes this direction and bans them, I find it hard. I mean, we haven't even talked about the costs of testing, the ability of testing for a manufacturer to find the estimated. I don't know if they're estimating one to two million or some some huge number of dollars. To, to approve some odd testing scheme to get it legalized, to get it sold, and then for for the government to legalize that, I just I don't know how that could happen or will happen. It's that's why it's taken so long for the Ministry of Health to bring their um, regulatory process up to speed. That's the problem. How do you do that? And they're, they're wrestling with that now because they've got nobody to compare with to, to, to compare notes with. Only the pharmaceutical industry, and as we know. A drug to get from an idea and onto um, prescription drugs, we're talking multiple billions of dollars. Um, now the governments have bandied around the idea of one to two million with the psychoactive substances testing. I am of the opinion it's going to be in excess of ten million. But who am I? You know, I'm looking from the outside. Yeah, because no. some of the tests you have to do, you have to do phase two or three. You're not trying to prove it works. Who cares about that? You have to prove it's safe. Because we all know if we're testing drugs, we've got to satisfy two requirements. A, it works. B, it's safe. Right? We don't have to worry about how it works. We, we all have to work out that there's a low risk to the user. So some of those testing's gone and makes it a bit cheaper. And now that there's no more animals involved, it's going to be a lot simpler. Yes, I don't know exactly what that will entail. Um, yes, uh, yes. So there you go. Now we're, we're testing. Yeah, no, no animals. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, um, this was a, this is a great experiment um, that that New Zealand has undertaken in in an attempt to kind of reduce harms from some of these substances. At this point, if another country was was um, looking at this as a way to go, would you give them any advice? You have to be cautious um, with public opinion around animal testing. If if your country is a, is, is happy with the idea of testing. Um, using animals to test for for, for risk uh, on psychic substances, then it's fine. But I suspect most countries won't. And from that point of view, I think a lot of countries will be reticent to go down that line of um, the approach that we've taken for the various for the very obvious reason that the public may have some out sense of outrage against animal testing, and so it's probably not going to work. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. I have to say that um, if if it's going to work anywhere, um, there's certainly some bumps in the process. Well, we shall, we shall see. I'll keep. I'll keep reading the uh, reading the paper. You have a great day. Hi, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. See you later. Bye.
Oh, uh, just one more thing, and I know that many of you have heard of the new FDA approval of Evzio, the uh, naloxone, the talking naloxone auto injector. Um, while I do understand the need for education with naloxone administration, it does seem odd to have an auto injector that talks to you. If you are ready to use pull off red safety guard. To inject, place black end against outer thigh. Then press firmly and hold in place for five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Injection complete. Seek emergency medical attention. This device has been used and should be taken to your physician for proper disposal and a prescription refill. I can't really imagine a bigger disconnect than the perky voice on the auto-injector and the scene of fear and hysteria that, that usually occurs during an opioid overdose. Uh, the, the addition of the beeps almost make it sound like some kind of video game. Uh, it should be interesting to see how this all goes. Well, and that ends uh, our show for today. As always, if you liked what you hear, you can respond to us, uh, talkstalk at talkstalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Um, also, uh, you can check out our Twitter feed at TalksTalk and our Facebook page. Also, please feel free to check us out in the iTunes store and, and drop a comment. That's how we find out uh, how you feel about us and often how others find out about us. Um, Talks Talk is made possible by contributions from the University of Massachusetts Department of Emergency Medicine and Division of Toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.